Hello, everyone. Just wanted to welcome you all back to our sermon series on Isaiah. Um, as we continue on with this video sermon series that we can all get to uh, enjoy together as we continue to quarantine ourselves because of the coronavirus. Um, I hope everyone is remaining safe. I hope that you all uh, continue to be healthy. Um, and hopefully we can continue to learn together, though, from God's word as we pour over what it is that Isaiah uh, was told to prophesy about. Um, so if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. And as you're turning, um, just a little bit of a recap of Isaiah chapter 5. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 5, we saw how God was going to judge the people because of their sins, because of all the things that they were doing, their injustice, their immorality. Um, and we ended the chapter with a really sorrowful note of that this, the light itself is going to become dimmed during the judgment. And and it is a really sorrowful thing because it makes you wonder, okay, where's grace? Is grace going to be able to overcome even this judgment? Or is there nothing left for God to do? Or is it all just completely out um, and judgment is all that there is? So now we come to Isaiah chapter 6, um, which kind of acts as a hinge between 5 and then what happens after. So starting with verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So chapter 6 begins with the death of King Uzziah. Uzziah died in 740 BC and was very prosperous. This was because he started out honoring the Lord, but as time went on, he became proud in his own accomplishments, which ultimately led to him being stricken with leprosy by God. Still, scholars note that Uzziah had been a true king, one not seen since the days of Solomon. Yet even kings blessed by God, they do pass away and they die. So in the same year where this occurs, Isaiah sees the Lord. That he is the Lord already gives us an indication of his status. The one who he sees is a king. This is seen more so in that he is one who he sees as sitting upon a throne. The throne itself is high and lifted up. And as such, the one who sits on it is high and lifted up as well. Um, thus, this ruler is greater than any earthen king. But in this, we notice something interesting. The Lord himself is not described. What does the Lord look like? Uh, it is too much for Isaiah to grasp. Instead, all we are left with is his robe. He is so great that the train of his robe is described as filling the temple. It is in this we understand why Isaiah could not find words to describe the Lord. For it is God himself sitting in this sacred space. Whether this was a vision of the temple in Jerusalem or the spiritual temple described in the book of Hebrews, we're not really quite sure. All we can be sure of is that it is God who is depicted in his majesty, in his sovereignty, and it's above all others. So now we come to verses 2 through 4. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voices of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Some might wonder how the seraphim stood above him. Isn't God above all after all? 
In present context, as God sits, we can join in the vision of those who attend him. Like a king on earth who may have individuals standing near their throne, it does not cause the one seated to have any less majesty or glory. And so it is with God. He is the one seated because he is the king. They are not. They attend to him. Still, we learn of the seraphim. There are two potential meanings for the word seraphim. The first is that the term is also used for serpents. Um, So there are some scholars who believe these beings look serpent-like or dragon-like. Some might also reflect on the serpent in the garden and consider that in this context, if this is um, how it's meant to be understood. Yet the term also may be taken as fiery in the scriptures as well, in which case the snake terminology may represent their bite. In this case, the beings would be fiery, or as commentators note, fiery ones, um, perhaps indicating living flame-like creatures. Even then, they do not have to be mutually exclusive either. They could be inflamed, serpent-looking beings, Ultimately, it is all speculation, for they are not described any further in regards to their appearance in this way. Um, And so instead, they are described by their wings. They each have six wings. The first two cover his face. And this likely represents God's holiness. They cannot or perhaps they dare not look at the eternal God. The greatness of God would be too great for them to even witness. The second pair of wings covered their feet. There's some debate as to what this means, as in ancient times, the feet could be used as a euphemism for genitalia. Um, Does some hold this, uh, this is what is intended. Still others hold that it is the feet themselves. Um, As one scholar, Motyer, notices, the feet are often attributed with purpose and direction. As such, this would mean that their purpose in the direction is the will of God. Finally, it could represent further the holiness of God in informing us the angels were covered from head to toe uh, because of God's holiness. So all of these are potential things. Finally, the last pair of wings were for flying, and and this one gives us a further indication of what it was for. Uh, This would indicate that their movement from place to place within the temple, that they were able to fly from one area of the temple to the other. All the while, um, while they're doing all this and while they're being covered, uh, they would sing. They would sing their song over and over in the presence of the Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. In Hebrew literature, repetition was often used for emphasis. Thus, for the seraphim to be singing holy, holy, holy is significant since it is the only time um, that an attribute of God is emphasized this greatly to us. Never do we find in the scriptures love, 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 or just, just, just. No, it's holiness that's emphasized. But what does this mean? The term holy means to cut or to separate. Thus, our holidays or holy days, which is a term meant for holidays, implies days that are considered separate from other days of the year. So it is with God. It is a description of his essence, of his divinity. He is different, other, and separate from all other beings. Indeed, none can compare to God. Yet scholars note also that there is more for the Hebrews. Um, For from this God comes morality, justice, and righteousness, indeed goodness itself. As such, part of his holiness is his character. 
In comparison to all others, here is one who defines goodness by his very character. That he is the Lord of hosts shows his awesome power. The gods of other religions were gods of their own spheres of natural influence and nothing more. Here, however, we learn that this God is the God. He is the God who is above all others. Even further, we learn an important truth about the God. That the whole earth is filled with his glory. That his glory extends beyond the temple complex further emphasizes his greatness. This is not some petty deity whose idol is fixated in the temple of its dwelling. This is the creator and sustainer of all things who is seated far above all things and enthroned in majesty, power, and glory forever. Thus it is that these angelic beings were praising and rejoicing in the Lord and all of who he is. So great was their song that it caused the foundation and the doorways to even shake. Why the doorways or thresholds are emphasized, it's unknown. Though scholars speculate that this is where Isaiah was standing in the vision. Thus he was acutely aware of what was directly around him. The final aspect of the vision, the cloud, which enveloped the scene. This could represent a number of things. Uh, The first is the incense, which was being burned in the temple, because we knew that incense was burned in the temple. The second is the cloud of the Lord, which is often described as accompanying God. Um, It might be a representation of his glory, even. Um, It could also be a physical representation of the Holy Spirit. All in all, we cannot be sure. Though the fact that it is specified may show us that it further caused Isaiah to be unable to fully see God completely. He who is so holy cannot be easily seen. So now we come to verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So far, Isaiah has been made aware of a number of things. The first was God's lordship over all else. The second was God's uniqueness in his essence as God as well as his character. Now Isaiah is made aware of himself in the midst of all that he has seen. His response is one of incredible fear. Indeed, we saw how he was calling woes upon other people for their lack of holiness. And now in the presence of God himself, Isaiah can only proclaim the same thing concerning himself. In light of God, what is he? He's lost. Thus, we find the first response is one of essence. For it is true, God is an essential being without whom nothing could exist. We, however, are not. We are created beings and as such, in essence, are completely different than God. God is not contingent upon anything, yet we are completely contingent upon him. But it is more than this for Isaiah. Not only is God so different, but Isaiah recognized his own moral inadequacies in light of this pure and marvelous God before him. He is a man of unclean lips. He has missed the mark. And not only that, but all his people are unclean. They are all morally deficient. With their lips, they ought to be praising God, yet instead they invoke his wrath upon them. In light of all of this, Isaiah cannot help but know his own doom. He has witnessed God 
And in this witnessing of God, he has become undone. Uzziah had passed away as a king. Now when confronted with the true king of all, no earthen king can compare. Isaiah is truly filled with terror over what he is experiencing in this moment. Now we come to verse uh, 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So in the midst of Isaiah's recognition that we find a seraphim respond as one flies to him. In the seraph's hand is a burning coal which had been taken from the altar. Scholars debate whether this was the altar of sacrifice or the altar of incense. Um, In either case, the coal is still burning like a flame. Thus, the fire is symbolized. What will happen now? Is this the judgment to come for Isaiah? This fiery righteousness of God come to engulf his unrighteousness. Now we come to the great question. What can happen in a hopeless situation? In the previous chapter, we wondered about the grace of God. Was the people's sins too great even for God's grace? Were the people without any possibility of hope? Are they like Isaiah, when confronted with the living God, utterly lost? Then, in a moment, it all changes. For the angelic being touches Isaiah's mouth, and with this comes not judgment, but redemption. Instead of coming with sword against Isaiah, we find God showing grace and mercy upon him. For though he had been one of unclean lips, now his lips are cleansed. The guilt he has is taken away. His sin is atoned for. It is not merely forgiven, but atonement for his sin is made completely eradicated. It was painful, but the pain brought about the redemption for Isaiah. Now we come to verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Whereas once Isaiah was standing on the outside, now he is able to hear clearly. Indeed, he hears the Lord clearly wondering who shall be sent, and who will go for us. To be sent, one has to have a message. In the midst of this, God has a clear message to give to his people. The next question, though, is, who is the us? It could represent the divine council, which is seen in the Old Testament. An alternative is, of course, is the Trinity um, being represented here. Either view works in context. In the end, it is God's will which is being discussed. It is his sending. He is the one who brings about the mission and his purpose will not be thwarted. So even if it's the Trinity or if it's the divine council, um, it's irrelevant about which one it is that's being discussed because in the end, it's the purpose of the discussion, which is the goal. So this leads to Isaiah. The man who so recently thought he would experience the end, uh, the one who had once had unclean lips and been from a people with unclean lips, he speaks up. I will go. I will do it. Will I do? Thus, Isaiah has come full circle. He has been given the vision of the Lord of all. He has experienced God in all of his majesty and his holiness. He has 
known his own guilt, his own shame. He has experienced this personal God of grace who shows mercy. Isaiah cannot help but give back in return. He has been seized by the power of a great affection in knowing this great God. All right, so this now leads to the main point. And the main point of these verses are to describe the vision of Isaiah that he has of God on his throne. God in his greatness, his majesty, his holiness, and his incredible glory. Isaiah cannot help but reflect on the situation by uttering a woe unto himself. He is like his people, completely unworthy before this holy God. Yet despite being unworthy, God shows grace. And in this grace, it leads to Isaiah being led to offer himself to this God, who is so great and so powerful, yet imminent in his mercy and his grace. Alrighty. So this passage in Isaiah has captivated us for many years, since Isaiah proclaimed it. Indeed, when we consider how many times we have read about the vision Isaiah had, it fills many of us with awe. We can't help but be joined with Isaiah as he has this experience. We are brushed away somewhere else, somewhere sacred, as we read the text and when we consider Isaiah's encounter. I think that this is good for the most part. The way the text describes everything makes it almost impossible for us not to wonder over it. Here is a mortal man experiencing things strange and foreign to him. The singing seraphim, the cloud, the throne, and the one who's seated upon the throne. It's hard to not become mesmerized by this encounter. Because who cannot be captivated by the grandeur of it all? Indeed, it is worthy of grandeur because it is grand itself. Why? Because of the topic of the whole experience. Remember, we learned from the beginning that Isaiah had just died. This king who had been unlike any since Solomon. We could wonder about the people. They saw the rise of Assyria in the distance as a global power. They could see the potential for political upheaval with their neighbors. They could worry about all that was to come their way, and they were leaderless in a way. And it's in the midst of this upheaval that the vision comes. Do you know what Isaiah was no longer thinking about when he experienced this? The death of a king. The powers of the world. No, instead his entire being was focused on God who was before him. This eternal being who was so unlike him. It wasn't the seraphim. It wasn't the smoke, the temple, or the throne. No, it was the God who was high and lifted up. This is the topic of the encounter. The experience of Isaiah with God. Where the God of Israel is no longer just in the temple complex behind the curtain. Where the God of Israel was imminent, close at hand. Here Isaiah learns that God is not like anything else. For God is necessary by his very nature. Whereas all other beings, no matter what, are contingent. And this was something Isaiah learned immediately. 
Thus, the reaction of Isaiah isn't so strange to us. Isaiah recognizing the holiness of God and witnessing that it is from this one seated on the throne where all goodness comes must look at his own self and realize his incredible inadequacies. When perfection is presented to us and we see perfection, then deficiencies are made plain. So it is with Isaiah. He recognizes his many deficiencies. And when compared to the greatness of God, what more can come other than destruction? And this, I suspect, is one of the many problems we face in our own Christian culture today. Far too many of us believe that we have had an experience with God. And yet, we never really have. This leads to two terrible consequences which individuals and congregations, especially in America, have begun to see. The first is that we have an incredibly high view of ourselves. In one sense, it is right to have a high view of humanity. Uh, We are created in the image of God, and therefore we are not worthless. However, we must also acknowledge the fact that we are not infinite. While we are not merely made of stardust, the truth is we are like stardust in that stardust is something made just as we are made. We are completely dependent upon something else when it comes to our existence. Our dependence rests upon the creator and the sustainer of the cosmos. And acknowledging this, it should cause us to be humble before God. Yet we find ourselves with unclean lips. We profane God with our lips. Instead of seeking obedience to the one who created us, we seek self-autonomy. We rely on ourselves to be our own masters, devising our own wisdom, trusting our own knowledge, and leaning on our own ways, justifying ourselves as we go. Meanwhile, the seraphim sing of the holiness of And of the gloriousness of God with their lips. They seek obedience to God. They rely on God as their master. Trusting in his wisdom. Knowledge and his ways that are best. We see this as the seraphim obeys God in cleansing Isaiah's lips. Instead of questioning God. The seraphim is obedient to its creator. The holy God who sits on the throne. Thus, in not having an experience with God, we fail to view ourselves in our proper light. And because of this, we often fall into far more deadly peril and brokenness. This brokenness is seen deeply in our society, which advocates this self-interest and being true to you as the highest of ideals. This, in turn, leads to the second problem, which is that we very often have far too low Of a view of God. Instead of God being the creator. The sustainer. And instead of him being the lawgiver. We find God to be like our own little buddy. He becomes an accessory to our lives. Rather than the necessity of it. Instead of finding our ultimate fulfillment in him. And knowing him. And seeking him. We find it in what he can do for us. We see the results. We trade the God of the universe, the cosmos, for a God who looks like us. 
We trade the holy for the profane. Instead of living in a way which honors God in holiness, we allow ourselves to live however we desire, and we justify ourselves because God is just like us in our minds. Yet imagine if we all had an experience like Isaiah. The result would be the same. If we truly had an experience with God, then we would all fall on our faces. We would all pronounce with Isaiah, Woe is me, I am lost. We would all recognize our state as we gazed upon perfection. And we would quake with fear. Because in his holiness, we would be fearful of our lack of holiness. Oftentimes we believe that fearing God is a strange concept. Yet when we think of who God is, fearing him is the only reasonable response. Fear is a good thing when that fear leads us to realize who we are in light of who God is. This is why we are told, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Why? Because if we fear God, it means that we know God. And if we know God, then we know ourselves. And if we know these things, then we can know how to live. But this then gives us a pause. Is fear all there is? By no means. It is only the beginning. The question is, where does it lead? It leads to what we find in Isaiah today. For his response to the greatness and the perfections of God is fear of him over his smallness and his imperfections. Yet it doesn't end there for Isaiah. Isaiah is undone. He is lost. But by God's grace he is found. Because as it is, God takes away his guilt. Despite being a man of unclean lips, a sinner, God redeems him. Thus God must act in our lives in order to give us this redemption. It cannot come from Isaiah himself. For in Isaiah there is no way to redeem. But through God there is the possibility of redemption. This redemption belongs or beings change. Isaiah is no longer the same. He recognizes the holiness of God. And instead of fearing the holy God of all, Isaiah now cherishes him and his holiness. Indeed, we see this in ourselves. Isaiah's vision is a remembrance to us. If God can redeem this man with unclean lips, then he can redeem our unclean lips. If God can take that which is profane, he who is worthy of pronouncing a woe upon himself and makes him an instrument of his glory, then he can do so for each of us. But it requires us to have an encounter with the Almighty. It requires us to have our sins revealed to us in the presence of one who is holy. It requires us to come face to face with the infinite. To realize our own finiteness and in the process find ourselves. Only by God's grace can this be done. Only in such an encounter can we be changed to praise the God of all glories. As such, when we read this story of Isaiah, let us be encouraged. Let us remember that it is through God's grace that Isaiah no longer has any fear but love. 
Let us know that the same God who is on the throne, high and lifted up, is lifted up even still. His glory is still over all the earth. And we who first fear him can love that which we once feared because of his grace. So be encouraged in this time to pray for a true encounter with God. Do not be misled by emotional appeals, but instead seek to be led into the awesome presence of God himself. You may be afraid of such an encounter, for it will change you, and it will open your eyes to see, and it will cleanse your lips. But through it all, God's grace, mercy, and love will be revealed. Because C.S. Lewis was right. God, he's a lion, but he is not a tame lion, but he is a good lion. Good lion. Come then, kneel before the one on the throne, and know goodness itself, and all glory divine. Naturally, this all leads us to the gospel. Um, And usually, in this aspect, I I break it down into four different parts of the gospel. Um, And it begins with our origins. You know, the whole universe is created by God. He is essential. We are not. Nothing is essential other than God himself. And because of that, it's from him that all things originate. That's why it's origins. And it's from this God that all things came into being. And he brought it into existence. And he brought us into existence. But what makes us different than all the others is that we are made in God's image. And this gives us all humans worth, sanctity to life, and dignity to life. And this is a wonderful thing. We can rejoice in the way that we have been made. Each and every one of us have been made in such wonderful um, grace and beauty. We really have. The problem, though, comes... With the fall. The problem comes with Isaiah. With his unclean lips. And being a people of unclean lips. Because that's what we are. We profane that which is holy. We are unrighteous. And instead of rejoicing in what is good. We often cling to what is bad. And try to justify ourselves. Over and over and over again. And so we become guilty before God. We deserve judgment for our sins. We deserve every single woe that can be declared. Because we have all failed and we have all sinned against this holy God who is seated on the throne. We are like the people of ancient days. Who instead of proclaiming with the angels how great our God is. Profane him in his ways. And instead of glorifying God, what we find in ourselves is a desire to be God. But we can't be God. So the question is, what can be done? Well, by God's grace we see. By God's grace we find, even in this text, redemption. But it doesn't come by our hands. It comes by God's hand. Because it is from God we can be cleansed. And it's just like with Isaiah on an altar. From a coal of the altar that redemption comes. So on the altar of love 
are we given redemption by Jesus Christ. He who lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh, whose blood is spilled on the altar in heaven for us, for those who place their faith in him, for those who come to see their desperate need of a Savior, for those who do fall on their knees before this king, their head will be lifted up. And then, that which they once feared, more than anything, love itself, they will cling to. And they will cherish. It is necessary for us to understand our weakness. It is necessary for us to understand our own inadequacies because unless we do, we will continue to say to God, I can do better than you. But as soon as you realize you can't do better than God, as soon as you realize that there is no hope apart from God, it's only then that you can understand the greatness of the redemption he offers through his son, Jesus Christ. And so it is, we can rejoice. Because he is still high and lifted up. Because God is still the God of all. And if he can redeem us, and he can offer us eternal life through his son Jesus Christ, then there is nothing to fear. No virus. No death. And we can live in complete obedience to God, faithfully following after him, Every single day. Because even if we should get sick and pass away. Even if we should get murdered. Even if we should get robbed. Even if we should just simply die. In the end. Our hope is not in ourselves but in God. He who right now the angels are singing over. Declaring holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And then guess what happens with Isaiah? Isaiah, in recognizing all of this and after his redemption, he gets to partake of that glory. He can listen. He can hear God. And he can follow God. So it is with us. Because those who have faith in Christ are being led in glory. We are being led to better days. And so though we may have trials and tribulations here and now, in the end we know God is good because of what he has done through his son Jesus. And we know whatever sacrifice or whatever may come our way, in the end God is going to be glorified and glory for God is good. Because he himself is goodness itself. So as we continue forward and as we continue on with everything that's happening in our society, in this world and as God pours out judgment upon it let us continue to trust in him let us never doubt the fact that even under these circumstances God is good and that his ways are good and that in the end no matter what may happen he will lead us into his glory should we have faith in his son Jesus Christ so I encourage all of you again, remember the gospel during this time. Cling to Jesus. Because it's through him that no matter what happens, we find redemption. Let us pray.
Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for the prophet Isaiah who saw you high and lifted up and how through this vision, he was able to communicate to us that God, you really do exist and that you can be witnessed. And that Lord, it's through you that redemption comes. And so Lord, we ask, please let us encounter you. Please let us see you face to face. Let us understand you. Let us cling to you. And let us rejoice in your holiness. And let us join in your holiness as we seek to honor you and glorify you. Father, it can't happen without you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would make yourself known to us. We ask, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us. And we ask, Lord, that in the end, you would take all that we have. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have done. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, everyone. I thank you so much for joining. I pray that God will keep you safe, keep you healthy. And remember, no matter what happens, God is good. God bless everyone. See you later.